New York's most iconic triangular building, the Flatiron, just sold for a whopping $190 million at a Manhattan auction yesterday. Jacob Garlick of Abraham Trust ended up being the winner of the auction. Jeff was like, this was a ridiculous proposal. And he said that was a red flag that made me think he didn't have the money. Good morning and welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. And today we're delving into one of those real estate stories that absolutely took New York by storm, the Flatiron Building fiasco. Right. New York real estate can often feel like a very small world, I think, you know, very niche mm-hmm. at times. But this news was like a feeding frenzy for the city's media outlets. I was actually grabbing drinks with some friends from journalism school like the night it broke. And I feel like we spent a good 30 minutes just tossing around theories about what happened. I know, because honestly, the whole thing reads like a mystery, right? You have this unknown guy to the, as you put it, small world of New York real estate. And everyone's like, who is he? I don't know who he is. I've never heard of him before. Mm-hmm. And he steps up to the plate to buy one of the city's most iconic buildings and then completely drops the bowl and walks away. He skips the deposit and leaves the fate of this building hanging in the balance. It's wild. Mm-hmm. So our colleague Keith Larson has been on the phone seemingly nonstop for the past few weeks, just diving down every rabbit hole that might connect to this garlic guy. So Keith has since resurfaced, and he's now offering Deconstruct a window into the investor who flaked on the Flatiron building. But before we bring on Keith, here's some of the stories that topped our site last week. Okay, so first, we had a long-expected foreclosure in L.A. finally come to fruition. Isabella, you broke that. So what went down with the Rubin Brothers and Century Plaza? Yeah, this has been a long time coming. I feel like it was one of those stories where I would like check back every week and it was just crickets (laughs) like absolutely nothing had happened and the foreclosure kept getting pushed back so david and simon rubin two investor brothers from the uk foreclosed on century plaza which is this 2.5 billion dollar hotel and condo development in la's century city neighborhood the developer michael rosenfeld had defaulted on 1.8 billion dollars in loans in 2021 and the Rubin brothers held about 65% of that. The Rubin brothers made a credit bid on the property that was a portion of the senior debt that they held. And given that their senior loan was $890 million, the successful bid they made came out to just a small fraction of what it cost to build that project. So they got it at a really steep discount. And while we're on foreclosures, we also saw Lender Arbor Realty Trust foreclose on four multifamily buildings in Houston. Those properties were valued at $229 million, um, and they offered housing to lower-income folks in the area. We haven't seen that much distress crop up around multifamily yet, right? We talked about that in an episode a few weeks ago. Yeah, and I think it's mainly because the incredible rent growth we've seen over the past couple of years – But I think where we are beginning to see early threads of distress are in the Sun Belt specifically. Um, If buyers paid too much for buildings, speculating on those surging rents, slowing growth or even slipping rents in some areas are going to make it hard for them to keep up with their debt service coverage ratios, to pay their mortgages, to 
you know, remain in good standing. Obviously, anyone who took out a short-term loan and has to deal with higher rates is going to get hit too. Right. We had the story a couple months ago about Tides Equities, this really large buyer of multifamily complexes across the Sun Belt, and how they were starting to see some of these issues rise. Um, so check out that story on our website. And you and Keith gave us a peek into what's next for Signature's loan book. What are the biggest takeaways there? Right. So we know that Newmark is selling signature CRE loans, which includes the so-called toxic rent-stabilized multifamily. I put that in air quotes. So we looked at what types of firms would be most interested in that portfolio and what a sale to each would mean for these properties, which are thought to be underwater at this point. And who seems to be most likely to pick up the debt? So our survey of investors and brokers, it, it seems to be a private lender as opposed to a small bank or a big bank. The suitors could be you know, private equity, private credit, hedge funds, debt funds. And what are the pros and cons? Cons of each. Yeah, the thought is whoever buys the loans is going to need to mark them to value. And we know that values have fallen. So if the buyer is interested in short-term returns, it may buy the loans for like 80 cents on the dollar and then offer the borrower a deal to pay off the debt at like 90 cents on the dollar in a set time period. So in that case, the buyer bank's return, the borrower gets to keep their building. And that would be like a hedge fund. And what's the alternative there? So if the buyer is one of these, as one broker put it, cowboy private equity funds, it could be more aggressive. It could buy the debt for really cheap. It could limit restructuring options. And then it could collect on defaults if it charges you know, really high penalty interest rates at like 24% or if it forecloses. Got it. That sounds like the more extreme option. Are there any safety rails in place in that case? Yeah, kind of. So it, it depends on what goes down with the FDIC. Um, in a release a few weeks ago, it said it was going to partner with state and city governments looking at how it's going to sell the loans. And the thought is, I was talking to the head of one nonprofit, and she said that the FDIC is going to talk to the city's housing agency to make sure the loans go to a buyer who's going to preserve affordable housing. Because the city and the nonprofits who care about affordability, they don't want all of these buildings to fall into foreclosure or go to a predatory buyer who's not going to take care of them. And that could jeopardize the, the tenants who rent these units. And then the last thing I wanted to mention is Blackstone's move to close its record $30 billion real estate fund last week. So the investment firm has got a ton of dry powder on its hands. We're not sure yet what it's going to do with that money, but we know that they're focused on logistics and life sciences, data centers, really alternative assets. Even before the pandemic, they were moving away from malls and offices. So it'll be interesting to see what assets they actually buy. Yeah, they actually report earnings on Thursday, so we might get some more clarity there. Okay, so hard pivot here, but Isabella, before we get into your chat with Keith about the Flatiron Building, I thought it would be a good idea to offer a little background about the building itself. So it had its 120th birthday last year. I think if we look at the history of ownership, it becomes clear that the building is as much a character in the story as 
Jacob Garlic, the potential buyer who did not put down the deposit on the building is. Right. So first off, this isn't the first time that the Flatiron building has gone up to auction. Back in 1933, the building's second ever owner, Louis L.N. Rosenbaum, fell behind on mortgage payments. His insurer, who was also a tenant in the building, sued, and the building went to a foreclosure auction where the insurer nabbed the property with a $100,000 bid. Yeah, and for context, Jacob Garlick's winning bid was $190 million. Right, so you can see just how much that value has skyrocketed since 1933. But even Jacob Garlick's bid was thought to be a little bit too high. So the insurer, Equitable, ends up selling the building after World War II ends. And that's critical to this kind of funky ownership structure that landed the Flatiron Building in an auction. Yeah, the building is picked up by a banking attorney. His name is Max Silverstein. And the property manager, who is eventual real estate billionaire Harry Helmsley, wriggles himself into ownership through what's called a tenancy in common. And what what does that mean? It means all owners had to agree on decisions tied to the building. It's different than a typical partnership where whoever owns the majority stake calls the shots with tenancy in common, all of them have a say. Okay. I can smell the trouble brewing with that situation. (laughs) Right. In the 90s, Jeff Garral, who's a major player in New York real estate, buys into the ownership. And then in 2006, Italy-based Sorgente Group, which later bought into the Chrysler building, gets in on Flatiron too. But it pays way more than Garral did. Its stake values the property at about $180 million. Okay. And then we also have Silverstein, right? Yeah, who passed on ownership to his son, Nathan Silverstein. Okay, so it's Nathan Silverstein, Garal, Sergente Group. Correct. That was the ownership as of, you know, a few months ago. And these parties could not agree on what to do with the building. Sorgente wanted to turn it into a swanky hotel. That flopped. Then in 2019, the owners struck a deal with co-working startup Notel to lease the whole thing. But then Notel flopped and went into bankruptcy. Then Silverstein went completely rogue and allegedly suggested dividing the landmarked building into five separate properties. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. He also claimed Garal had cut a sweetheart deal with Notel and hadn't found any other suitors. Anyway, lots of hiccups here, but it finally blew up into a partition sale where the building would need to be sold at an auction. Right. And then out of the blue, you get a top buyer, a winning bidder, who seemingly has no connection to the story. So I think we should start, you know, with the question that I think everyone was wondering, you know, a couple weeks ago when this auction happened. Who is Jacob Garlic? He came, he seemingly came out of nowhere. No one really had heard of him. I think there were so many headlines being like this real estate outsider, Jacob Garlic. Who is he? Where did he come from? What's his background? Yeah, it's it's still it's still a little bit of a mystery. It's, it's quite strange. I mean, he's 31 years old. Uh, he was from originally from Boca Raton, and then he's more recently been living in Northern Virginia. Kind of how he has risen to this point is still a bit of a mystery. Um, it's unclear exactly what he's invested in. A lot of his investments are in public. Uh, what we do know is that he, it appears like he's not, um, he doesn't have a fund backing him. Like he kind of will find investments and then will raise the money to invest in them. It's odd. I think when the auction had happened, he said something like, It's been a lifelong dream of mine since I'm 14 years old. I've worked every day of my life to be in this position. We're honored to be a steward of this historic building. 
and it will be our life's mission to preserve its integrity forever. Thank you. That's all for now. He's from Boca Raton. He's not, it doesn't sound like he's a native New Yorker. He's not, doesn't really have any connection to the building. Did you get a sense of, you know, why he wanted to buy this building? Have you been able to get into that? From my understanding, it was something to do when his dad drove him, drove past this building, told him about what it was, and it, it fascinated him. And then he also told him that he had some very distant relative that was that was a that had an interest in the building. And that also fascinated him, I think. Who's the distant relative? Well, we do know that he is related to the minority owner of the building, Nathan Silverstein. Um Silverstein confirmed that. So that would be my suspicion is that it's a family member of Silverstein or Silverstein himself. I don't know, though, why, um, what made him think this is a good investment or what made him think that this is something that um, would really he'd be able to do. But um, yeah, it was like when he was 14 and he was driving through New York with his dad is a story that I've heard. And then I know his dad passed away. So I'm not sure kind of how that played into it too. Um, from what I understand, he had a very close relationship with his father. Okay. So what else, you know, what is he, have you been able to get a sense of, you know, what he's like? You said that before that he's charming and is a good speaker. Um, well, yeah, it's, it's kind of limited. I mean, I've just been speaking to people and I've just from kind of his, he's got like two or three podcasts, last YouTube videos and he seems very, like, from what I've heard, he's a very likable guy, extremely likable, extremely charming. People enjoy talking to him and, and enjoy being around him. Uh, that's from what I heard. You know, I haven't, I, I spoke to him for about one minute. You know, I, I can't speak from personal experience, but that's, that's what I've heard. What did he say? Yeah, it was, it was quite a bizarre kind of experience because I called him around, um, you know, the, the deposit was supposed to come in on Friday. Friday, I think at five and I called him and I was like, um, Oh, is this Jacob garlic? And he was like, yeah, you know, this is Jacob. And I was like, Oh, um, you know, I'm Keith Larson, the real deal. Like, are you going to put down this? What's going on with this closet? Like, are you gonna, like, what's going on? Are you going to find this? And he's like, Oh, you know, I, he's like, look, I can't talk right now. He's very affable, very, very like, nice. And he was like, oh, I, sorry, I can't talk. I'll tell you about it next week. I'll tell you everything going on next week. And it was just, it struck me as so odd that one, he would take this call because the deposit was coming due that day. And two, that he would say, you know, that I'll talk to you next week. Like you have, he had a limited time frame to get this in. Like it should have been kind of this rush, like this kind of like either frantic period or I don't know. It just, it just seems so weird. So obviously, you know, he didn't put down the deposit. We Can you talk a little bit about what the next steps are for the building? Okay, yeah. So now things are getting weird. He's been talking about getting back into this thing. And I know he's been telling people that and uh, or told at least one person that and been indicating that um, he's been trying to submit his fine, showing, you know, that he has the funds to do this. No one believes that he can do this um, that's involved. It just seems unlikely that he's able to pull this off. But right now, it's interesting. So Goral turned down his option to buy the building at 
189.5 million. So he turned down his option. So that kind of leaves, there's either two options. They either goes back to auction and they have to start this whole marketing process in, and it could potentially get a higher price because of all this this has gotten, or he works out a deal with Nathan Silverstein, who is the minority partner who they've been in a dispute over this renovation. And Nathan does not like Jeff, like he just does not like him. And so it seems unlikely that a deal will get done, but you know, anything's possible. And you've spoken to Jeff Garal. Um, what does he think about, about garlic bidding in the first place, about him coming back? I mean, he's been around forever and is very highly regarded in, in New York real estate. Like, you know, there's other people that have done more, but he, his reputation is, is very, people really respect him. Like if you can ask anyone and they'll, they, they think very highly of him. So that, I think that's important, but he, he was like, Whoa, this, what, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, this, this doesn't make any sense. Quite frankly, I think this guy paid too high. But then things got really weird. And like immediately after the auction, Jacob turns to him and is like, let's partner on a deal, which is strange. Cause like, why would you want to partner on a deal with the person who you just bought it from? Like, it doesn't make, it's just a weird thing to do. And then later he asked, he actually asked Jeff, um, according to Jeff, that to, to put, put down the deposit. He asked Jeff to put down the deposit. Yeah, to fund the $19 million deposit. And he would get a 10% stake in the building. Jeff was like, this was um, a ridiculous proposal. And he said, that was a red flag that made me think he didn't have the money. How did you go about, you know, this is someone that not very many people were familiar with. How did you go about, you know, reporting this and trying to figure out who he was? I mean, I'm dug pretty deep into this and basically just kind of following every person he's connected to and every deal that pops up. And then also just reaching out to people that that I knew in DC and saying like, Hey, you know, you heard of this guy. And then it kind of just leads to, to more information. It's, it's weird. I mean, you know, like it, this, this doesn't really happen. There are a lot of young people that get to this point, but like they're known because of their family, they have a family backing or they um, maybe are representative of a larger group or something like that. Like a, like an SL green or something like that. But for someone to rise to this point without anyone really knowing who he is, except for a couple of small investments. What are the small investments that he's made so far that you've been able to dig up? He claims to have been a partner in this company called M Help Desk. Looking to learn more about M Help Desk's field service software? Stick around to see a detailed product. It was like a provider of like, like a software company or whatever that provided stuff to handyman and like contractors and stuff. What's interesting is that he wasn't a founder of this company, but he came in as a partner and he claimed he helped with their customer experience or something like that. So it's a bit kind of unclear even to what his role was, but that company was purchased by a much larger company called IAC. That, I mean, that's one of those more notable deals. And then he also had a company called Website. He invested in this coffee company called Commonwealth Joe, which is like a DC based like coffee company. And then another one is a, like a body weight that appeared on Shark Tank. It's just really strange because it's unclear where this money is coming from. And it's not family backing. He does have some, some wealthy family members. There's his mother, he, he's cousins with these very wealthy people called the Schofields. 
and it's Fred and Karen Schofield and they're very prominent uh, DC area, Northern Virginia, like philanthropists and entrepreneurs and business people. And so I do know that he's very close with them and I believe they have funded one of his ventures. So like, but that's, it's a little different, like, you know, okay, he's got some family money. I don't know. It's not like a dynastic family. And it's a little unclear as to like what he's actually good at. That maybe he is really talented. Like he seems like a great speaker from what I've heard and from what I've been told. He's very charming, but I don't know if he really has a tech background. Like, does he really have a real estate? You know, how deep is he into real estate? I mean, this deal with the Flatiron makes zero sense. Everyone will tell you that it is not a smart deal. You know, it's an historic landmark and it's very difficult to do anything. It requires a very extensive renovation that Jeff Gorrell, the majority owner said would take maybe, would cost maybe up to a hundred million dollars. So it's just kind of strange that he would do this because the returns wouldn't pencil out for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Has he made, have you been able to figure out if he's made any other real estate purchases before, you know, was this his first attempt, I guess? I am not aware of any real estate that he has purchased or any other deals. And, you know, that's what, um, there's just a lot of things here that are very, very strange. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have an idea or guest you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're chatting to Airbnb's head of real estate about their new short-term rental strategy. Tune in then.